Good morning. Uh, welcome. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, we're on a journey through Philippians here in these weeks. Um, we'll be jumping on to Zoom for the church to be together after we're done here. Well, this is the fourth message in the series on Philippians. Uh, we've seen the background to Philippi, what the culture was like, and how we, that can help us to interpret the letter. And also we have seen how Paul prays for his friends and the deep, deep affection that he has for them, uh, especially when he is separated from them by prison. And then last week, uh, saw some really challenging questions about how we deal with difficulties and trials when things all go wrong, how we deal with opposition uh, how we view life and how we view death and saw that for Paul the answer to all of those things was was Jesus. Everything was centered and focused around Christ. The man is utterly, utterly obsessed and focused and centered on Jesus and on the gospel. And today we're going to continue from chapter 1 and go a little bit into chapter 2, not, not that far into it. Uh, there is an unfortunate chapter break here in Philippians. Uh, really, just in case you're new to all of this, the, the chapter breaks and the verses were not in the original manuscripts and documents that our Bibles are translated from. They're handy to find things, uh, but sometimes they're not in a great place, and this one is definitely not in a good place. It would be better if the chapter break was at 127, at the start of 127. Because up to this point, especially from 12 to 26, Paul has been talking about himself, about his own circumstances in prison, thinking about the future and what it might hold for him. And then in 127, it all shifts from him and a report on how he's doing to them. So that's a better place for the chapter break to be rather than uh, where it currently is after chapter 1, verse 30. Let me read the last few verses of chapter 1. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence... I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Let me read on. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. 
we'll stop there and hopefully we'll get there uh, within the next half an hour or so. There are two problems that Paul is addressing for the Christians in Philippi. And then after we've looked at those two problems that they are facing, we will then meet twin evils or evil twins, if you prefer, uh, in, in chapter 2 and spend a little bit of time on those. Remember from our introduction, maybe you don't, it was three weeks ago, uh, the culture in Philippi is a Roman culture. The architecture is Roman, the dress is Roman, the, the, the rulers are Roman, the coinage is Roman, everything about Philippi is Roman because it has been populated by Caesar with ex-Roman soldiers to give them somewhere to live and to win favor with them. So you have this little church, this little group of Christians who are living in an intensely non-Christian environment. Remember, there was not even enough of them there to start a synagogue. When Paul got to Philippi in Acts 16, he found a few people praying by the river. He did not find a synagogue, which means there were not 10 Jewish men in the city. So it's a thoroughly pagan environment. And whenever I was growing up, and probably for a lot of you when you were growing up, you, you weren't growing up in a pagan environment. The culture of the Western world, it was changing, but it was still largely respectful of Christianity, respectful of the church, held the, the church and her leaders in reasonably high esteem. And you didn't really have to battle with what it meant to, to be a Christian in a pagan culture that was hostile to Christianity. Things are changing. It is not like that anymore, and culture is becoming more hostile to Christianity than it was even a few decades ago. Now, we might not be commanded as the Philippians were. We might not be commanded to declare that Caesar is Lord and Savior whenever we go to a public event, but people will roll their eyes at us when we hold to biblical opinions on things that they don't agree with. If people adopt a particular lifestyle and we hold to the biblical view that that lifestyle is not good, then people will call us old-fashioned. They will say we're ignorant, we're not with the times, we're not moving forward, and they will say all sorts of things to us. So we hold opinions and points of view that causes culture to look down their noses at us, to sneer at us, and to see us as being odd, weird. When politicians and celebrities are, are celebrating ways of life that are contrary to what God's Word says, and we stand firm on what God's Word says, we feel that opposition of culture coming against us. And what Paul says in verse 27, which is a long verse, he opens it up. The NIV here says, whatever happens. That's not what the Greek says, and it's maybe not what a lot of your Bibles say. What the Greek really says is only, only. In other words, Paul is, is focusing them in on, on things that are really, really important. And he says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. In other words, he says, let your public life reflect and match up with the gospel of the king. Now, when Paul talks about public behavior, you've got to understand that in that culture, nearly all of your behavior was public. They didn't really do privacy the way we do it. 
They didn't have double glazing. They probably had no windows at all or no coverings at all on their, on their windows. They were just open. The walls were thin. You couldn't lock the door uh, and, and sort of close yourself in and have privacy from what was going on outside. The vast majority of your life was lived in public. So when Paul calls us here to conduct ourselves publicly in a way that matches up to the gospel, that doesn't mean you can behave different at home or behave different when you're in private or when nobody's watching. He basically says all of your life has got to be conducted in keeping with the gospel of the king. And one of the things that these Christians in Philippi were having trouble with, it wasn't so much about what they were doing, it was about what they were not doing. Because in Philippi, every public event you went to, and I've mentioned this before already, the public event started off not with a national anthem, but with a declaration that Caesar is Lord and Caesar is Savior. And everybody at the event would have shouted that triumphantly and then got on with their party or, or whatever it was, their festivals. But the Christians were now starting to get noticed for what they did not do. They were becoming noticed for the times that they chose to stay silent rather than joining in with everybody else and doing what they were doing. Now, I had a funny sort of experience of something like this, a little bit like this. Way back in my youth, in the mid-90s, I went to a lot of concerts and there was one concert that me and a mate went to in Dublin um, by, by a band uh, I'm not even going to mention them because the content of some of their, their singing was, was a tad crude. But anyway, we were at this concert and uh, at, towards the end, it had been like an all-day thing and there'd been other bands and it was, it was a great day and everybody was just like summertime and everybody was enjoying the show and it was moving towards the sort of the climax at the end of the night. And this, these guys had just done their thing where they'd said goodbye to everybody and disappeared off stage, but everybody knew they were going to come back and do some more songs. Um, but then the bass player came out on his own. This little dude from California, small and covered in tattoos, comes out and he stands in the, at the microphone at his, on his own and he starts singing. And I couldn't make out what he was singing. I was listening and I thought, I don't really know what he's singing. But everybody else there seemed to know it because they were joining in. And whenever I heard the tune, whenever my mate and I heard the tune and looked at each other, we realized what was going on. He had come out and he had started to sing the soldier's song in Gaelic. I don't know Gaelic, I don't know Irish, and I don't know the soldier's song, even in English. But we recognized the tune. And so we're standing there in the midst of tens of thousands of people and we're suddenly realizing we're becoming very conspicuous to everybody else, not because of what we're doing, but because of what we're not doing. Because everybody else in the crowd is passionately singing this in Dublin on a summer's night with this wee dude from California who has memorized it all for them. And we're standing there in the middle of it all, totally silent, looking like we're staging some sort of political protest, but we're not. We just don't know it. That's a, a tiny and, and sort of insignificant glimpse of what it was like in Philippi when you went to a public festival and you didn't join in with what everybody else was doing and what everybody else was declaring. You stayed silent when they were shouting. Paul says to them, you have to live as citizens of the gospel. When you dig in here to, to what he says, those words, conduct yourselves in a manner, 
he uses an interesting word. He does not use the word that he normally uses whenever he is exhorting Christians to live in a certain way. He likes to use the word walk. And even saying that, I'm fearful that the dogs at home have just heard it and looked up. But that's the word that Paul uses. W-A-L-K. He uses that word. He uses it in Galatians 5, 16, and he says, walk in the Spirit. He uses it other places as well. That's his standard word whenever he is calling people to live in a certain way. But here he uses a different word. And he uses a word from which we would get politics or from which we would get police to do with the polis, the city, how to live in the city, in other words, how to live as citizens. What he literally says here is, live as good citizens. Live as good citizens. And he does not just mean what what we might understand from that, you know, conduct yourself in a way that a person living in Philippi should conduct themselves, a good citizen, a good member of the society, a good member of the community, be upright and upstanding and all that. That's not what he means when he says, live as citizens of the gospel. The clue to what he means is actually given in the introduction that we did to Philippians and also comes up in 3.20, where Paul says to them, our citizenship is in heaven. Now, you'll remember that because Philippi was a Roman colony, everyone who lived in Philippi, even though it was in Greece, everyone who lived there was a citizen of Rome. And everybody knew that. You were a citizen of Rome, living Roman culture away from Rome. And Paul says to the Christians, and this is such a key for understanding Philippians and the terminology that he uses, he says to the Christians, You need to live out your citizenship, but your citizenship is not in Rome. You're not being called to live in Philippi as a Roman citizen. I'm calling you to live in Philippi as a citizen of heaven. That is where your passport is stamped. You belong to the city of God. Now you live out that citizenship, that gospel life, in the town, in the city that you are living. In other words, you are to show people what heaven is like. Just like the Romans living in Philippi showed the world around them what Rome was like, Paul says to the Christians, your lifestyle is meant to show people what heaven is like. Now, I don't know about you, but I find that incredibly challenging. If people want to know what heaven is like, Paul is saying, look at the church. How are we doing? How are we doing? You want to know what heaven's like? Go and join that church for a month. Jump in with those people eat meals with them, go to worship with them, have coffee with them, pray with them, listen to them, observe them, and you will know what heaven is like. I think this is one of the most challenging concepts in everything that Paul writes, something that should really, really resound deep within us. If the world is going to see what heaven looks like, the church has got to show them. 
How are we doing? Are we there yet? Are we even close to that? When people look at the church, do they say, look at that odd little bunch of backward people locked away in their little buildings, never seen, never out in society, just doing their thing behind closed doors in secret? Do they look and think, what an odd little bunch? Or do they look at how we live and find something that says, I wonder who this king is that these people talk about? Do they see anything in our lives and in our behavior that is attractive to them? I think for us as a church, one of the things that I have missed desperately in the past year, and it's hard to believe that it is now nearly a year, but one of the things that I've missed is communion meals. When we take two or three hours after we're done on Sunday morning and we eat together and we drink coffee together and we eat dessert together and we drink more coffee together and we sit together as a community. I think there's more potential in that for a person to see a glimpse of heaven than there is in a dozen sermons. That people could come in and sit in that environment and, and observe and participate and go away thinking there's something there. That's going to have a more profound effect than just listening to a sermon. Paul says our behavior must match up to the gospel of the king. And he calls them in verse 27 to stand firm. And the only way we're going to stand firm is if we are united. He says also in in verse 27, stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man, one person for the faith of the gospel unity. It looks like in Philippi, the second problem, the first problem is that external pressure from the culture around them as they don't do the things that culture around them is doing. He calls them to stand firm in that context and not give in to that external pressure. But there's also a bit of internal unrest. There must be a little bit of disunity among the Christians at Philippi. You get a glimpse into it in chapter 4, verse 2, where Paul writes, I plead with Yodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. These are two women in the church who must have been disagreeing about something. And can you imagine being there in the room as this letter is read? I think Epaphroditus brings the letter to Philippi before Timothy follows it up. Can you imagine being in the room whenever this is read and, 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 and Epaphroditus says, I plead with Euodia and everybody looks over at Euodia and I plead with Syntyche and everybody looks over at Syntyche because she's on the opposite side of the room because they won't sit together. And he says, I plead with them to be of one mind in the Lord. Oh, awkward. Very, very awkward. These two women have had their names forever remembered in the, in the Word of God because they disagreed. And Paul is begging them to agree. There is disunity. Imagine as that's read, the elephant that has been in the room in the Philippian church for months that everybody knows is there, but nobody has quite got around to addressing. Paul has just called it out publicly in front of everybody. I wonder what they were disagreeing on. 
and I wonder is one of the most important verses in Philippians that you wouldn't and I wouldn't have previously thought to be an important verse is actually chapter 1 verse 10 where Paul is praying for them and one of the things that he prays for is that they would be able to discern what is best. It came up two weeks ago, it came up last week and it's here again. I wonder are they failing to discern what really matters and are they disagreeing on things that don't actually matter? Unity is so important in the church. It's not a luxury, it is a necessity. It is non-negotiable. And he says it in so many ways. He talks here in verse 27 about contending as one person for the faith of the gospel. He says in, in chapter 2, verse 2, be like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. He refers to it again and again and again in lots of different ways, but it's all the same thing over and over again. It is unity, and it's easier said than done. Even in a small Christian community, to foster unity and to protect unity and to maintain unity is a huge challenge. But it is a challenge that we must rise to, because at the slightest sign of disunity, the watching world will say, look, you can't even agree among yourselves. Why should we take you seriously when you bicker all the time about insignificant things? And the outside world will seize on one little thing that people are disagreeing on and they will celebrate it and they will call it a split and a schism and all sorts of things because it means that they don't have to take the gospel seriously. And listen to me, church, and listen well. Don't just take this as a little series of Bible studies, some teachings in Philippians to keep us going in lockdown. Listen well. If we are not united, if we are disagreeing on things that don't matter and allowing those disagreements to turn into dissension and disunity, what we have done is we've put a massive sign outside the church, out on the street saying, you don't have to listen to the gospel because we don't actually take it seriously. It is so important. We fight over theology. We fight over so many things. We fall out over clothes. We fall out over Bible translations. We fall out over songs. It is absolutely disgusting. It is abhorrent. It is contrary to the gospel. And it stands in the way of the gospel when we behave in a way that is not showing unity. Then we just, it's like we, we just pull the teeth out of the gospel and society around is not interested and why should they be but whenever church comes together and whenever churches in a town come together not just one church showing unity but all of them coming together and being united that is a powerful voice but it is powerfully rare in our culture shamefully rare and the only way to achieve that unity, Paul says in, in verse 27, he says, stand firm in one spirit. One of the biggest problems that we get with English Bible translations is the word spirit with a lowercase s. 
that we then just think it means, you know, be, be agreed or be, you know, be together. You've got the same spirit, same atmosphere, same ethos. Not what it means at all. Capital S, Holy Spirit. That's how unity is achieved. And Paul regularly speaks about the Holy Spirit in the context of unity. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, he says that we are all baptized by one spirit into one body. The spirit brings unity unity. In Ephesians chapter 4, we went through Ephesians a year or two ago. Yeah, it is chapter 4, verse 3. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit does unity. The Holy Spirit brings unity among people. And whenever we whenever we put a lowercase s here and just say, be of one Spirit, then what we're doing is we're saying to people, it's, it's up to you in your own strength to achieve this unity. And we are negating the work of the Holy Spirit who brings a group of people together who are different, different in age, different in education, different in employment, different in background, different in all sorts of ways. He brings them together and he unites them in a way that nothing else can do. It is a work of the Holy Spirit to bring unity. I've heard people observe about Pentecostal churches. Sometimes they'll say about a Pentecostal church, oh, that, that, that church is supposed to be Pentecostal, but it doesn't look very Pentecostal to me. And I wonder, what do they really mean? What is their metric for Pentecostal? What is their, their way of measuring whether the Spirit is at work? Is it that whenever they turn up on a Sunday morning, they hear people speaking in tongues. Now, I am in favor of people praying in tongues in private. It should not happen in public unless someone else is there who is going to interpret it. But I believe praying in tongues is a spiritual gift for today. They might also be using the measurement of prophecy and saying, are there any prophetic words being spoken whenever the people gather together on a Sunday? I believe in prophecy as a gift of the Holy Spirit that should be active today. But I don't believe those are the main things to measure whether the Spirit is at work in a community of people. If you were to ask me to be some sort of church inspector, horrible term, horrible role, thankfully it doesn't exist. But if you were to ask me to go to a church and observe whether or not I think the Spirit is at work among that group of people, I would look for one thing and one thing only. And if it's not there, nothing else would fill its place. And the thing I would look for is unity. If there's not unity, I couldn't care less how many prophetic words are spoken. I don't care if you on one side of the room can speak a prophetic word about somebody on the other side of the room when you can't actually be united together in love and in purpose in the gospel. I don't care. That's, you know, that is not, for me, evidence of the Holy Spirit at work. The Holy Spirit at work in a community of people will first and foremost bring unity in the gospel. And there will be lots of other evidences, but that, for me, is the primary one. Nothing else can take its place. And these people are being told in Philippi, stand firm, united in the Spirit for the gospel. Do all that you can to move forward as one person. That doesn't mean they have to agree on everything. It doesn't mean they're all doing the same thing. 
What it means is there's different parts of the body, but there's one heart beating at the middle of it all, and that is a heart for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Unity in the Spirit. Paul says in verse 28, not to be intimidated, not to be frightened. Because as I've said earlier, culture around them is intimidating them. When they're staying quiet, everybody else is shouting, Caesar is Lord. And they're staying quiet, it gets intimidating. They're maybe beginning to be pushed out of society, pushed out of the local economy, shunned and ostracized because they're not doing what everybody else is doing. And Paul says, don't let them intimidate you. Stand firm. And it's easier to stand firm when you're united than when you're on your own. Stand firm. And whenever you stand firm, he says, that will be actually a sign to them that those that intimidate you are not going to be successful. Those that sneer at you, criticize you, ridicule you, whatever, whenever they see you standing firm in the Spirit, contending for the gospel in your community, they will realize they're not being successful in their intimidation. And it will become a sign to them that their way of life is destined for disaster and that the new life of the kingdom is what is moving forward. He goes on in verses 29 and 30 to talk about suffering together. Again, I, I refer you back to eight messages on suffering that we did a few years ago. They're on SoundCloud if you want to listen to them. Paul says in verse 29, It has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe, but to suffer. And that word granted means gifted. You have been graced not only to believe. We can, we can do that. We love that. I'm more than happy to, to embrace belief and faith. That's a gracious gift that I'm happy to have. But Paul says you've also been graced to suffer. We're not so quick to receive that one. But Paul sees it as a privilege. He's in Rome, suffering in a Roman prison at the hands of the Romans. And the Philippians in Philippi are suffering at the hands of the Roman culture that they are living in. They're in this together. Even though Paul and his Christian friends are separated, they're still united, suffering together for the gospel. We cannot be surprised when we face suffering. We cannot be surprised when we face opposition. Church, we have chosen to follow one who was crucified. The world is not going to cheer us on as we do that. Suffering shows that there are two kingdoms clashing. There's the kingdom of this age that is destined for destruction. And there's the kingdom of God that has broken into it. Those two kingdoms clash. And suffering and persecution and opposition, therefore, are guaranteed as we seek to follow Jesus. As we go into chapter 2, we've, we've looked at two problems then. We've looked at the problem of, of external pressure from the culture around them. And we've looked at the problem of internal disunity. We then get into chapter 2 where I'm going to introduce what I call evil twins. Not like there's one good twin and one evil twin. They're both evil. And Paul has this interesting sentence as he starts chapter 2. He says, If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ... If you have any comfort from his love, if you have any fellowship of the Spirit, if you have any tenderness and compassion. He just stacks up the ifs. He, he, he's, he's being rhetorical here because your answer to all of this is, of course we have encouragement from being united with Christ. Of course we have comfort. 
And he's sort of setting us up for the command that he's going to give by, by stacking these things all up. And Tom Wright puts this, he says, if with all of this you still don't want to work at living in unity with your fellow Christians, something is seriously wrong. If everything in verse 1 is a reality and you still will not focus on unity with your brothers and sisters in Christ, something is seriously, seriously wrong somewhere. And also, I'm not going to take time to do it now, but if you compare this verse to the last verse of 2 Corinthians, you'll see the Trinity here. You'll see the work of Jesus, you'll see the work of the Spirit, and you'll see the God of love, the Father at work as well in how Paul stacks things up here in verse 1. And after he stacks it all up, he says, right, here's what you have to do. Here's your command. Verse 2, make my joy complete, make my day by being like-minded. Now, this word is going to come up 10 times in Philippians. Mind. How you think. It is not about agreeing on everything. If you think you're going to find a church, a group of Christians, or somewhere that you agree on everything, you will be eternally disappointed. It will never happen. It, that's not what the word means. When he says be like-minded, it doesn't mean you have to agree on every single thing. You have to discern what is best. You've got to know what's important and not disagree on the things that don't matter. So it doesn't mean we have to agree on everything, but it means we have to agree on one thing. It means we have to have a mindset that is focused in a united way in one particular direction. And it's back in chapter 1, verse 27. We're contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. It's all gospel. It's all Jesus. And church, if that is where we are, all of us, there will be no disunity. If we are contending and like-minded and utterly focused on the gospel of Jesus Christ, then we will not have dissension and disharmony over minor things because we're living on a higher level. We're thinking on a higher level. We have discerned what is actually best. And in verse 3, he exposes the evil twins. Listen to them. Listen to their ugly names. Verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition. That's one of them. One of the evil twins is called selfish ambition. Or vain conceit. That's the other one. Selfish ambition and vain conceit. These are the attitudes. Listen to me and listen well. I'll be done hopefully within about five minutes or so. That was a lie. But these are the two things that Paul isolates and identifies and says, these two things will destroy community. They will lead to disunity. Church, me, Everyone, search your heart, examine your heart, and if there's any trace of these two ugly twins, get them out and kill them. Selfish ambition, vain conceit. Gordon Fee says, these twin evils lurk behind the breakdown of all relationships, Christian or non-Christian. You look at any relationship that has broken down, and you'll find one of these two in the mix, maybe both of them. Selfish ambition, vain conceit.
And, and I'm going to look at what they mean. But Paul says in verse 3, do nothing. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Don't let these two motivate any of your actions, any of your living. Selfish ambition has already appeared back in chapter 1, verse 17, where Paul amazingly last week said that some people are preaching the gospel out of selfish ambition. And his response is, I don't care. The gospel's being preached. Selfish ambition. This is like a, a main course of selfishness with a side portion of envy. It's the desire to get ahead at the expense of other people. The desire to put our own needs ahead of the needs of others. It is the common disease of fallen human beings. Selfishness. My agenda is the only one that matters. My opinion, by default, is the right opinion. I don't even need to listen to anybody else. And I definitely don't need to ever back down and say that I might have been wrong about something. Selfish ambition. Just pushing ahead of other people. Whenever the language of someone in the church begins to become denominated or dominated by I, me, my, instead of we, us, and our, then trouble is coming. Whenever it becomes all about me, selfish ambition that will put my opinions, my needs, my viewpoints, my aims, my objectives ahead of those of the community. We're headed for disaster. We're headed for disaster. Selfish ambition. Paul says, do nothing, nothing out of selfish ambition. And vain conceit. Literally, when you look at this word and you, and you pull, it, pull it apart in Greek, it means empty glory. Empty glory. Vain conceit. It's an oxymoron. It's a contradiction in terms. Empty glory. It's like saying hot ice. You just can't have it. Empty glory. It means acting, prancing, mincing around in a way that you have no right to be. Acting in a manner that, that, that puts yourself above others, draws attention to yourself, glorifies yourself. It's very closely linked. That's why they're evil twins. It's very closely linked with selfish ambition. And a good guess here is that there are some idiots in the church at Philippi who are going around with their head full of their own opinions and they're pushing their opinions on others and they are causing disagreement and disunity about things that don't matter because they have failed to discern what is best. Vain conceit. My ideas are more important. My opinion is right. By default, I'm right. You're wrong. I won't even listen to any other point of view. And Paul says these two things, selfish ambition, vain conceit, these are behind every broken relationship, every ex experience and example of disunity in the church. These two lads are in the background at play somewhere. If you see them, kill them. How do you kill them? The end of verse 3, in humility, consider others better than yourselves. 
That's how to kill the evil twins. Humility. Humility is not, oh, I'm a useless worm wriggling about in the dirt and I have no value. That is not humility. That is a completely wrong, warped understanding of humility. Humility is Jesus. Humility is the great invitation at the end of Matthew chapter 11 to come to him. Listen to what he says about himself. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. His humility and the fact that that he is humble is evidenced in how he gives himself away for others and brings others to him that they might find rest. It is his concern for others that is his humility. And whenever we are exercising true humility and we are considering others better than ourselves, then the evil twins don't get any oxygen and they die of suffocation because we refuse to give them oxygen. Whenever we are making decisions and we think what is best for the community of faith instead of what is best for me, then we're acting in humility. We are reflecting the character of the Jesus that we follow and we are obeying this command that Paul gives us. But whenever we're just thinking, what's best for me in this situation? And we're not thinking about how that affects the others in the community of faith. Then we're slipping back into being influenced by the evil twins. I hate the evil twins. I want to suffocate them. I want them to die and never, ever come back. And the way to do it is for church to live in humility, looking to others as more important than ourselves, looking to the opinions of others as more important to ourselves. That doesn't mean you you tolerate wrong ideas and wrong opinions and things that are unbiblical and you don't ever correct somebody gently and say, listen, that's wrong. That, that's not actually in keeping with the gospel or the scriptures. It doesn't mean you, you, you tolerate silly ideas. But it means you don't just ram your view down people's throats and say, it's my way or the highway. Humility. And in verse 4, he says, and, and this is where, again, I'm afraid the NIV has got it wrong here. The NIV has put a word in here that is not in the Greek text of the scripture. It says here, each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. The word only is not there. So it should not say each of you should look not only to your own interests. It should say each of you should look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Now, that doesn't mean you don't look after yourself. It doesn't mean you're not responsible about caring for yourself. It doesn't mean you neglect yourself. It means that you're not top of the pile. And if you've got a community of people who are all looking out for each other, that's a beautiful place. That's a place where you don't fear for your own needs being met or you, not, you don't prioritize your own needs being met because you know you're in the safest place on earth. You're in a community of people who all look to each other's needs. That's far more important than their own. 
the way this is translated here, each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests in others. That translation allows me to put my interests first and then look to the interests of others. Whereas Paul says humility doesn't do that. Humility looks to serve others and trusts that our own needs will be met and that others will also serve our needs because we live in this mutual humility, this mutual community of humility where we're all looking out for each other's interests. Again, you can hear the teaching of Jesus coming through in Paul. Jesus in, in Mark chapter 10, and I'm nearly done. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus says somewhere towards the end of it, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to be to serve, sorry, and to give his life as a ransom for many. In the world, we see authority being exhibited and being displayed as bullying, bossing people around, forcing opinions on others. Jesus says, no, not going to be like that here. He says, we're going to serve one another because I'm, I've come to serve. Not to be served, I've come to serve. I've come to be a slave and we're going to read more about that next week. It's a shame we can't go into it now. How does Paul and Timothy introduce themselves at the start of the letter? Slaves, servants, looking after the needs of others. It doesn't mean that they are without value. It doesn't mean that they are leaving themselves open to be trampled all over. It means that they are looking out to the value and to the needs of others. And if the Philippians have this mindset, Instead of bowing their knee to the evil twins of selfishness and empty glory, instead they have this mindset that is focused on the gospel and they have this humility that looks to the needs of others, their disunity will be gone. Gone. It will not get a foothold. Minor disagreements will remain as minor disagreements that people can agree to disagree rather than fall out over if the Philippians have this mindset. And church, if there are disagreements and disunity, that means this mindset is not being held. This mindset that puts the gospel first and this humility that puts the needs of others first. If, there are, if there's disunity, somewhere we're dropping the ball on having that mindset and having that unity. Gordon Fee, I quote again, he says, nothing can frustrate the gospel as much as internal friction among believers. Nothing just causes the gospel to drop on the ground and be trampled over by the outside world as when we can't get on. The gospel is about reconciliation, but unreconciled people don't advertise it very well indeed. And if we don't get this mindset right, then it's over in Philippi, and it's over in Tandragee, and it's over anywhere where the church is. If we don't get this mindset, this is so, so important. This single-mindedness, this ability to discern what is best. How do we get there? Same way we get there with everything in Paul. We get there 
by looking at Jesus. And next week, we'll look at the next half a dozen verses where Paul just puts this amazing picture of Jesus before us. But we can't understand. And what has happened frequently is that we've taken the next half dozen verses without realizing why Paul put them there. He puts them there as a response to the problems that he has raised in 127 to 2.4. The problems of how you stand firm in the spirit with external opposition and internal disharmony. The problems of, of these evil twins of selfish ambition and vain conceit and the disunity that they bring. How do we counteract that? How do we develop the humility that we need and the mindset that we need? He says, right, church, we're going to look at Jesus and see how that, how he puts our problems into perspective. That's next week. It would be lovely to flow right into it, but we can't. Um, I will see you soon on Zoom. I will not break any speed limits getting home for that. Thanks for listening. Go back, read over Philippians again so far. See some of those themes coming out. I will see you soon. God bless you. Slan.